Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you here. Thank you for joining us. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. That's where we'll be reading from. Uh, I do want to share one quick story now that we're doing our... uh, communion like we used to. Uh, one I was reminded just a second ago uh, when we passed the offering. When I was a kid, I used to always, when the offering plate would come, I used to always really dig into my pocket like I had something in there. And I would always like reach and dig around and then I'd go like this over the plate so that to everyone behind me it looked like I gave something. <laughs> and uh, I always remember thinking, and if I could get the guy passing the communion tray to laugh with me digging around for something and then going like that over the plate. Uh, But uh, anyway, just a fun memory I have. I'm sure I got flicked in the back of the head a few times by my dad whenever I would do that. But if you would turn with me in Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be reading from one of the most famous poems in all of Scripture, one of the most famous hymns in all of Scripture. Some people call it the Christ hymn. It starts in verse 15. And what I want to ask you before we read is that you would stop and take a second to really reflect on what we're about to read. Uh, It's almost like, how many of you have gotten to go see memorials in Washington, D.C. before? Anybody been to the Abraham Lincoln Memorial or the... uh, There's something about when you're there that you almost feel like the, the words are just echoing off and you're just like in the presence of uh, something that matters. And uh, sometimes whenever we read scripture, I, I fear that because we have so much access to it, because it's just like, oh yeah, it's in my phone, it's, I just have a Bible, I have 20 Bibles, I have 30 Bibles, that it can lose some of its impact. And I, I ask that as we read this poem, that you would not uh, miss the chance to allow these words to have an impact on you. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. On Wednesday night, we're going to go into more detail about some of the artistry of this poem, so I'd invite you to come to that. But this poem is chocked full of beautiful details that we just don't really grasp because we don't know Greek, and uh, because it's a, a poem that's meant to be read over and over, and it's meant to be something where whether you read it twice or whether you read it a million times, you get something new as we learn more about our, our Savior and who Jesus is. But there are a few things that I think are really important for us to talk about, and a few things that, what what we have to ask the question is, why do the Christians in Colossae need this poem? Paul wasn't just sitting there in jail thinking, man, I just want to write something poetic. I just want to write something profound. He wasn't thinking that. He knew that he wanted to write this poem so that 
it would impact their lives in some way. And I want to ask that question, and I want us to then take the answer to that and see how it applies to us. And so here are a few things. The first thing is, in this poem, we learn that Christ is true wisdom. If you were here last Sunday, you heard me talk about how Paul's prayer for the Colossian church is that they would grow and gain wisdom and spiritual understanding. And if you remember from last week, the crucial part of that and it's throughout Scripture, is that wisdom is not what we often think of wisdom. Wisdom is not whether you know the whole periodic table. By the way, I got that right that time. Remember one time I talked about it and I said like the chemistry table or something? Uh, being wise isn't whether you can list all the presidents of the United States in order. That's not wisdom. In the Bible, wisdom is about whether or not you align your life to prioritize God and to fear God. And then when Jesus came along and became the image of God, it became about how do you prioritize Jesus Christ in your life. That is wisdom. And, one of the, and so we see that Paul's saying, I'm praying that you may have true wisdom. And now he's saying, let me tell you who true wisdom is. It is Jesus Christ. And the reason why you may be sitting there going, I don't really see how you got there. How did you get from this poem that we just read to wisdom? Well, in Proverbs, Proverbs has many voices that personify wisdom. Is personify a word I can use? Do you know what the word personify means? It's where you talk about something like it's a person. You know, if someone said something like about their car, well, she's just a good old car. Obviously, the car is not a woman. But you are personifying the car and talking about it like it's a person. In Proverbs... God personifies wisdom as a wise father and as a woman calling out. And he also per personifies foolishness as an adulterous woman and as a tricky man trying to trick you into listening to them. And so here is from Proverbs 8 where we see wisdom, knowing and fearing God, prioritizing God, personified as a woman speaking out to us. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. I'm not going to stand on a chair, Anna Marie. But the idea is that Lady Wisdom, a woman personifying wisdom, is standing at the gate of the city. She's standing at all the road streets, and she is trying to call out to get your attention so that you pay attention and have and gain wisdom. What does she say? She says... Uh, she cries out at the entrance of the gate. To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. She is trying to get all of our attention. God is constantly trying to get us to get wisdom. That doesn't mean to not be dumb and to, not, and to be smart. It means to prioritize God. And here is the rest of her speech in Proverbs 8. And tell me if this doesn't sound like what we just read from Colossians 1. I was there when God set the heavens in place. This is wisdom speaking. When he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command. He's, she's saying, I was there at creation with God. From the beginning, God's wisdom of prioritizing God has been there. Then I was constantly at his side, God's side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. And so we see that Paul is taking this constant theme in Scripture of wisdom 
And he's saying, you want to know about true wisdom? This woman, this personified as a woman in Proverbs 8? Well, Jesus Christ is true wisdom. And so before you get all caught up in listening to these false teachers say, well, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be a you know, really holy Christian person, you need to do these things. As we read Colossians, we're going to get into the more details about what those things are. Paul is saying, it's not about that. If you want to know about true wisdom, it's not about this religiousness. It's not about this holiness. It's about whether or not you prioritize wisdom, who is Jesus Christ. Next, really important theme in the poem is this idea, and it kind of speaks for itself. It doesn't need much explanation. But the idea that Jesus is the true image of God. We see this throughout Scripture. We see it throughout the New Testament. The point that's trying to be made over and over is if you want to get a glimpse of who our God is, look at our Savior. Jesus is the true image of God, and in Him, the full character and purpose of God is embodied in a human. The more we look at Jesus... And the more we realize that the true God is the God of utter self-giving love because we see Christ dying on the cross for us, the more we understand the kind of God that we have. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more later, but I'm going to hint at it here. Do you remember how throughout the Old Testament God says, do not make an image of me? Do not make any images. Don't try and make a bull and say, well, bulls are powerful, so that's, this is our God. Or don't make a lion statue. We don't have a lion painting up here and we say, well, God is like a lion because no image will ever do justice to who our God is until he sent his son to say, this person does justice to who I am. This person fully and totally encompasses who I am. By the way, there's another reason, which we're going to talk about later, why God says not to make images of him. The third thing that I think is really important from this poem as we read is that it's broken up into two stanzas, two major sections. The first one is at 15, and the next one is at 18. And if, you're, if you have your Bible open, you can see it pretty clearly. Well, I say clearly. I think that after reading a lot of textual stuff, it seems clear. But the idea is, he says, The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And then he begins to talk about Christ being there and being a part of all of creation. And then in verse 18, he says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And so the way we, the clue for both of those is that repetition of the phrase, Christ as the firstborn. He is the firstborn of all creation, and he is the firstborn of the new creation, his church. Jesus is the firstborn, and in the Old Testament, that phrase has less to do with whether or not you were born first and had more to do with this idea of your status. So in Psalm 89, it says, Psalm 89 says, I will make my firstborn, talking about David, I will make my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. And so you know David wasn't the first man ever made. You know, you know that, so he can't possibly be saying David is Adam or the first person born. But what he is saying is, in the same way that in this culture, the firstborn receives all the benefits of the father. It's not like today where you know, things are broken up fairly evenly. Back then, it was the firstborn got everything. The idea is, is that Christ is the one who gets everything and was there with everything in creation. And now he is the firstborn from among the dead. And because of his dying on the cross, because of what he's done for us, his church gets to reap the benefits of him being the firstborn. The more that I, I look at this and the more that I, I think about how profound this phrasing is set up, the more I think, isn't it fascinating that the first part is talking about how 
We have to be so impressed by God creating all the earth. And then what was his second great creation that he is the firstborn over? His church. And I don't know where you stand on what you think about church. I don't know where you stand on what you think about the importance of the local church or what you think, whether you think what we're doing here is significant or not. But what I can tell you is Paul thinks it is second. It, it is right up there with God creating the whole world, was God creating his church. And I hope you never lose that. And part of why I love this image of Paul creating the church as the firstborn from among the dead is we often act like what Christ has in store for us has to do with after we die. But Christ being the firstborn from among the dead is we get to call ourselves, those who gather here, those who have joined with Christ through the death of baptism and been raised with Christ to new life, we get to call ourselves those who have died and those who have been born again. And he is now the first of us, the first to go through that. And, and now we get to be a part of that as his church, as his followers. And so the next time you think about what exactly is this church, what is this thing that we do, we get to be the new creation. We get to be God starting all over again through Jesus Christ and saying, this is what I had intended from creation, is this body of people that have died to sin and are alive with Christ. And so I can imagine you sitting there saying, okay, what is, what is this big poem that is kind of a, that's about God creating the universe, it's about this big, uh, you know, massive scale of just how important Jesus is. Where do we fit into this story? And so there are two things I want to say, and then I want to read Paul's answer to that question. The more you get to know about Jesus Christ, the more, the more you get to know Christ and get to know about Christ, the more you will understand who the true God is and what he's done, who we are as a result, and what it means to live in him and for him. The reason why Paul put this poem in here is he's hoping that this young church will grow into the new creation that he has in store for them. And the beginning of that has to do with, do you really know who our Savior is and who our God is? The mission committee was talking about working with the Hmong people and kept using the phrase over and over, first generation Christians. And I don't think we can, I think what Paul, as he talks to this group of first generation Christians, is he's saying, the beginning of you starting to live your life for Christ begins and ends with whether you know Christ, whether you really grasp who he is and what he's done for us. And so here's where Paul says, this is where you fit into the story. Once you, the people in Colossae, those of us sitting in the, in the pews today, once we were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of the evil, because of your evil behavior. But now Christ has reconciled, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And so the imagery we have here is that Paul is, I want you to imagine, let's imagine that somewhere here in the middle of Clifton was just this incredible, amazing palace. And every day, none of us knew anybody that was in the palace. We just knew that there were people in the palace. And we all had to walk around every day, and we just looked and we thought, man, that, that looks special. That looks incredible. I want to be a part of that. I want to be able to go in there. But we all just had to constantly circle around it, and we all were outside of it. 
the imagery that Paul is using is like that, but it's of the temple. Back, back then, if you wanted to be in God's presence, you had to be able to go and be in the temple. And everyone who was a Gentile or everyone that was unclean got to just look at God's temple and just think, that'd be great to be able to be a part of that, but I'm never going to be able to be a part of that. Those of you who were Gentiles or unclean were not able to be in God's presence unless if you were a Jew, you could go through ceremonially cleansing yourself, you could become purified, you could do everything you needed to do in order to be in God's presence. And just those select few could. But what Paul is saying is that through Christ, through his creation and through his death and being the firstborn from among the dead, he has done the work so that you are able to come into God's presence. The palace that none of us are able to go into, because of what Christ did on the cross, he's come out, he's opened the doors and he said, hey, y'all are all welcome to come in. And we get to sit here and go, well, I didn't do anything different. Like, how come I'm all of a sudden allowed to be in the palace? And his answer is, oh, it's not because of anything that you've done, but it's because of what I've done. He says here, he has reconciled us, brought us together by Christ's physical body through death to present us holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Everything that Christ is, his holiness, his without blemish, gets to be passed on to us because of his death on the cross. And so I have one last takeaway and then I'll wrap up. And I think, I feel like this is for me just the, the most important part about this passage. Whenever you read this passage, the overarching thing is, who do you see Christ as? And do you see him as central to the world and supreme over everything? Do you see him as the Lord over everything? And I have a quote that I sent out to uh, people that come to our Wednesday night class that it's just been with me all week, and I think it's so important to this idea of who do we see uh, God as? There is no point in leveling an attack against selfishness or exhorting people to get busy and help others. By the way, what this author is saying is, we as a church can talk till we're blue in the face trying to convince people, hey, you should be less selfish or you should help people more. And we can just go on and on trying to convince people that being a Christian is about choosing to act better and live better. And he says, for whether people serve themselves or others is not in their power to choose. He's saying you're kind of missing the point here. This is decided wholly in terms of the kind of world in which, you th in which they think they live and in terms of the kind of power they see ruling the roost. The issue lies at the level of the God they worship and not in the kind of person they may want to be. In New Testament terms, they live or die according to the king that holds them and the kingdom to which they belong. And this is the reality. Paul doesn't think he's going to change the Colossians into people who are good at being Christians, who are good at living the Christian life by telling them, here's how you should live, here's what you should do. He's saying the beginning and the end to whether or not you live as a Christian is if you see Christ as Lord. And if you see his kingdom as the kingdom that rules. So let me give you some examples. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel are told by King Nebuchadnezzar, if you don't worship me, you're going to die in this fiery furnace. And what do they do? They choose to say, I'm not going to bow down to your idol. Why? Because they know that God is king and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is not king. No matter what the world says, like he's, if, if they were to say to him, well, we don't think you're king, he might be like, well, you're living here. I came and conquered your nation and brought you here. Who do you think is king? And they said, no matter what we see here, we know that God is king and we know that we're living in his kingdom. Whenever Pharaoh tells the Egyptian midwives, he says, Whenever you see that the male is born, 
you need to kill it and kill all the, the male Israelites. And guess what happens? The, the midwives choose that they're not going to kill the Israelite sons. Why? Because they fear God. Because they believe, even though Pharaoh says he's king, I believe God is king. That determines their actions. Whenever in the New Testament, Caesar tells all the Christians, we will kill you if you do not choose to proclaim that Caesar is Lord, they say, well, I'm just not going to say it. You know why? Because I don't see Caesar as Lord. I see Christ as Lord and his kingdom as the kingdom that is in charge of everything. Why do we, whenever election season is going on, why do we as Christians choose to say, no matter what happens in the White House, we are going to be okay. Our kingdom is going to be secure because our king is Jesus Christ, not whoever is president of our country. We get to be at peace and we get to be completely free of stress worrying about that. So how do we, whenever we go through our heartbreak in our life, whenever we face choices of what we're going to do, how do we face those? And the answer to how we face those is we choose to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is King and Jesus Christ is Lord and He reigns supreme. And that affects everything that I choose to do. That affects the person that I am. That affects the way I live my life. If any of you would like to learn more about giving your life to Christ and learn more about being one of His followers and being a part of His kingdom, this is a great place for us to be able to talk to you and for us to be able to have that conversation with you. And if you would like anyone to pray for you, there will be elders standing at the exits. Let's stand and sing this song.